Galatians 5, verse 16 to 26. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. As the grass withers and the flowers fade, God's word alone endures forever. May he bless it to our souls. Well, as we consider this uh, latter portion of chapter 5 and specifically looking at verses 22 to 25, we're seeing this in the context of the overall letter and in particular in the context of what it means to walk in the Spirit. Now Galatians, as we've often heard, and we don't want to forget, Galatians is a, a letter written to the church about guarding and keeping the gospel right about understanding the truth of justification and how we as sinners are made right before the holy God of heaven. That our works and whatever goodness we perceive we have in and of ourselves do not count for anything concerning our salvation, the forgiveness of our sins, that acceptance with God. That we are saved solely by the merits of Jesus Christ. We are saved solely by he who became a man. And who lived that life of perfection that we failed to do. And and thus we, we cannot of ourselves glorify God. We sin and fall short of his glory. Jesus did not. And in the fullness of his righteousness, God offered him up that new covenant head of his people. He offered him up as a sacrifice for the penalty of the sins of all of his people so that mercy could be granted and so that acceptance as righteous could be received by us. And the way that we receive that is not by going out and trying to earn it through our own goodness. 
It is by going and believing in Jesus Christ and Him alone, acknowledging that I cannot in any measure earn the smallest grace of God. That's justification. And and as Paul moves along here, he's bringing that now into the context of, of what it means to be a justified Christian. Whomever God has justified has in that grace become a new creation. We're no longer to be people walking willingly in sin, though we will continue to sin. We are not given a license to just carry on with life as usual, being unconcerned about sin. We're not to, as we heard here, we're not to practice those things that belong to the world that does not inherit the kingdom of God. We are a new creation. And we are to be living a new life that reflects that grace of God that has saved us. We call that sanctification. We call that the pursuit of holiness and righteousness. Or as it is called here in our text three times, walking in the spirit. Walking in the spirit. Walking in the spirit means that you understand who you are in Christ and who it is that has now taken up residence within your soul. That you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. That you recognize the Holy Spirit has come upon you. He's given you a new heart. He's revived your conscience and your will. And he is always and ever at work in you against that sinful nature that you yet have within you to conform you to Christ, to make you more and more like Jesus, that perfect man who in his life brought glory to God in all that he did. Paul would write in Romans 8 the same truth, but in a larger uh, 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 version of this. Here he's being very concise. But in Romans 8, he speaks about being in the Spirit. And he says to you, dear Christians, you are not in the flesh, even though you find yourself struggling with sin. Even though you find yourself struggling with some of those sins that, that Paul lists in verses 19 to 21. But you're not in the flesh. In other words, you're not in that state where you can't fight against it. You're in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, if you are justified, the Spirit of God dwells in you. If the Spirit of God dwells in you, you are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit. Now walk in the Spirit. What he says in Romans 8 verse 9 is this. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Do not kid yourself. If you look at yourself, let's say you got up this morning, you looked at yourself, and and you played that uh, little Jack Horner who sat in the corner eating his Christmas pie. He stuck in his thumb, pulled out a plum, and said what? What a good boy. 
mind. That's not being in the spirit. That's being in the flesh. That's looking and saying, I'm all right. And one who is in the spirit understands that when we get up and we look in the mirror, we, we look and we say, the Holy Spirit is within me. Today is a new day of war against the flesh. And we might not be so dramatic, but that's the reality of being in the spirit. The spirit is at work in you to put to death sin, to bring out righteousness to make you like Jesus. And what Paul shows us here in verses 22 to 25 is how the Spirit does his work. How he works. God never works in a vacuum. I mean, he creates all things from nothing. That's true. But when he's working us, it's working with real, tangible Things pertaining to us. And the Holy Spirit does this work by planting and growing this fruit in you. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew, I believe it is Matthew 9 or maybe it was Matthew 7. Yes, there we are, Matthew 7. By their what? You shall know them. By their fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth bad fruit. A bad tree cannot bring forth good fruit. You will know them by their fruit. And and Paul is picking up on that very theme to say to you, and, and God has revealed this in a mighty way for us to understand. What is that fruit? By which we will know that these people are children of God. And here it is. There's nothing mysterious about it. It's fruit of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is the work of the Spirit. Do you know there's an even more powerful passage where Jesus speaks about fruit. I know most of you know John 15, where Jesus speaks about being the true vine. When you read, and I, and I encourage you maybe this afternoon to read John 15, verses 1 down to verse 17. Where Jesus deals with this whole issue of the, the fruit. The fruit. And what does he say? Uh, from verses 4, uh, 5, uh, 8, and 16. He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine... Neither can you unless you abide in me. Now, that first thing, and that was verse 4, and there's a lot in there, but I just want to highlight this truth, that the fruit of the Spirit that's listed for us there, love, joy, peace, all the way down to self-control, you cannot have that if you are not in Christ. Period. You might think in and of yourself you can exercise a measure of love or a measure of joy. But there's a greater measure to each one of those virtues in the fruit of the Spirit that come only by being in Christ. If you are not in Christ, you cannot bear fruit. Keep that in mind. 
What he's saying is the same thing that's been said all through Galatians. You need the justifying grace of God upon your life. You need to believe on the Lord Jesus and to understand that the only way that you can attain forgiveness and acceptance with God is by faith in the one who gave his life to bear the penalty of your sins away so that the Father can look at you and regard you no more as a sinner but as a child of God, one of the righteous ones because you're in Jesus Christ. You might be thinking, well, I know people who love and they're not Christians. I know people who do good things and they're not Christians. What he's saying here, what Jesus is saying, and I'm I'm focused on John 15 just for a few more minutes. What he is saying is that the very sobering, humbling truth is that without Jesus, without Jesus, you possess nothing of any merit or worth that is acceptable to God, no matter what good you do. Our Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 16, says it in this way about the works of unrighteous people. They may have a shadow of goodness in what they do, but any works we do, any fruit that we bear if they do not proceed from a heart purified by faith, nor are done in a right manner according to God's word, nor to a right end, the glory of God. You see the three conditions for what we do in fruit bearing, in bearing forth the reality of Jesus and the spirit abiding within us. They must come from a pure heart. They must be done in accordance with God's word. And they must always have that end goal, the glory of God. And if they don't, they are simply sinful and cannot please God. Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Impossible. Jesus is making that point here. But he goes on. And in verse 5 of John 15, again, he talks about fruit. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Again, for without me you can do nothing. Nothing. And it's again a sobering, humbling truth. That it is only in Jesus that you're not only able to bear fruit, but in Jesus you can bear much fruit. Because the Spirit is at work in you. It's like somebody going out and planting a garden. I don't know about some of you young children or young people. I always disliked our parents, my parents, planting these large gardens. They had a lot of children. We had seven kids. Because you know what our job was every single Saturday? Weeding. 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 How many of you love getting on your hands and knees and going through 
and pulling out all these weeds. I hated the carrot row the most because you really couldn't tell what was a weed and what was a carrot. And we probably pulled out just as many carrots as we did weeds. But it was no fun. But we didn't have anything unless you weeded. I remember one year we planted a garden. We went away for two weeks in the middle of July. We came back. There were no potatoes left. Two full rows of potatoes had been eaten away by bugs, potato bugs. That's how quick we lost everything. The analogy is there. Unless the spirit is at work in you, you will not bear fruit. And if he is at work in you, what's he doing? He's weeding your heart. <laughs> That's a reality. He's weeding your heart so that you will bear much fruit. But then Jesus goes on a little further to say this about the fruit in John 15, 8. We're going to get back to Galatians 5 very soon. But he says this, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So you will be my disciples. And why is it that God can be glorified as we are loving, rejoicing, being at peace, uh, being patient or long-suffering, kind and good, uh, being faithful and gentle and in self-control? Why is it that uh, however feebly we may be exercising those things right now. Why is it that God looks and he is being glorified as we bear this fruit? It's because he sees his son in us. Because every one of those virtues of the fruit of the spirit is a defining attribute of who God is. Isn't that amazing? And what God is looking at and seeing is that his spirit is at work making you like his son. And even however feebly it shows itself in our lives, God is glorified because he sees his image in you. Marvelous, isn't it? Then he says one more thing. In verse 16. You did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. That whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. You know what he's saying there again? Humbling, sobering truth about the fruit of the Spirit and the Spirit at work in us is that it is only because of the electing grace of God that you not only will bear that character of God in your life, it will remain. It will continue to grow in your life day to day. And it will remain because it is fruit born by the Spirit, in Christ. And what is it that we know about Christ? He is eternal. He is the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the one in whom all things are firmly established. 
And this cannot be taken away. Isn't that marvelous? That this is a work, as God says elsewhere, that will come to its full fruition. Your fruit will remain. And in fact, it will grow up into full completion in the day of the Lord. Where you will love and rejoice and exercise peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control in absolute perfection. That's what our God is doing. And coming back to Galatians 5 and looking at the fruit of the Spirit here, this is what you are called to bear. Walk in the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is this. It, it, it is what is used to conflict with the works of the flesh. Notice how verse 19 began. Now the works of the flesh are evident. When Paul comes in verse 22, and just as the works of the flesh are evident, so is the fruit of the Spirit. That it's not a complicated thing to be able to identify someone who is in Christ. (laughs) Because this fruit is there. And note the thing that isn't being said here. The fruit of the Spirit are not those charismatic gifts of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is the character of God. And the character of God that is being revived, renewed, and rebuilt within your life. And notice that the word fruit is singular. Even though there's nine aspects to it. Think of it like a diamond. You've got this jewel, the fruit of the Spirit. And it has these nine facets to it. That every time you turn it, you see another glorious aspect of that diamond. That's what this is. This is walking in the Spirit, growing in Christ, becoming more Christ-like. And when you hear Christians using that other language, I want to be more like Christ, this is what you should be focused on. This is what you should be asking the Father. Give me more. (laughs) Let your spirit work in me more and more freely. And and looking at the fruit of the spirit. and This this is the remainder of our time and it won't take us long to go through it. I'm I'm sure many of you have heard many sermons on this, this passage. But I believe it's important to break it down the way it's ordered into three sets of three that speak about preeminently the attitude of our heart. Because that's where the Spirit is working. And and when you look at the fruit of the Spirit, you see that it's all dealing with the inward man. What is going to be going on in our heart cannot help but come out in our life. Isn't that what Jesus said? Out of the heart proceed all manners of things. And if this is at work in your heart, it's going to come out in your life. It's an attitude adjustment. How many times have we as parents said that to our children? Well, God is saying that to us. I am going to adjust your attitude. And the first attitude is your attitude before God. 
with love, joy, and peace. Christ-likeness begins there. How you relate with God. Your relationship with God. And that's why love is the preeminent virtue mentioned in the fruit of the Spirit, encapsulating all the others that come after. And it is a reflection of who God is. What is the chief grace that reflects, and I use the word grace, what is the chief grace that reflects the character of who God is? We're told in 1 John 4, verse 8 and verse 16 twice. Now some of you are probably thinking, holiness. That doesn't necessarily reflect His grace. His holiness can reflect His justice. It can reflect His awesomeness. We're talking here about grace. Undeserved kindness and goodness to an unworthy sinner. And it is love. God is love. If you want to know what God's love looks like, read 1 Corinthians 13. If I can put a plug here. If any of you are thinking of buying Sinclair Ferguson's uh, Advent devotional on, uh, it's a Christmas devotional on 1 Corinthians 13, don't. I have some coming. But it's a beautiful chapter that speaks preeminently about God's love, the character of God's love, and how it works in us. And love clearly defined in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 8, it's something that when I'm doing marriage counseling, premarital counseling classes, I always like to remind people of this, is what is, what is the first adjective that's used to describe love? You see it's, it's here in our list of virtues. Love suffers long and is kind. And isn't that how God revealed himself to Moses on that mountain, hiding him in the cleft of the rock? The Lord, the Lord your God, long-suffering, God of love. It is his chief grace God so loved the world. You want to understand what that word world means, just read a few more verses after John 3.16 and you'll get an understanding. This world of evil and darkness that hates God. We read those words, God so loved the world. There was nothing meritorious about this world that stirred God's affection to send His Son It was purely the love of God that motivated him from eternity. And you think how much God loves you? How long has God loved you, dear Christians? From eternity. Well, this is love. And our attitude before God is to be an attitude of love. Love for God who has so loved me. And, and, and it's an attitude of Christ that, that is to be modeled in our lives. If you think about how Christ modeled love, you have but to go to the upper room and read John 13 and see Him getting up and humbling Himself 
to wash the feet of the disciples. What is that love that is being worked in us? It is that self-denying care and compassion where we demonstrate the love of God and love for God and love for one another and love for our enemies to the glory of God. It begins with, with God. Do you love God? My friends, that, that will change your attitude to just about everything. And joy. Do you rejoice in the Lord? You think about how joy is used in respect of this. We hear from Nehemiah 8. What is our strength? The joy of the Lord. What is the joy of the Lord? Well, we get it from, from Hebrews chapter 12. Most of you have this verse memorized. You've hidden this, I hope, in your heart. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the one who begins and who perfects our faith to the end, who, for the joy that was set before him, what was the joy that was set before our Lord? To do the Father's will in accomplishing the salvation of his people. That was his joy. And in taking up that joy that was set before him to doing the Father's will, he endured the cross, despised its shame. You see, here's where the attitude before God must be one of joy. Joy inexpressible, even in a fiery trial. Rejoicing in the Lord always, even when our circumstances aren't pleasant. Joy in the Lord. Because joy and rejoicing is the soul exercising affection and confidence in God whom we know is working everything in our life for his glory and our good. And so when I get sick or am confined to a wheelchair or get cancer or find that my ability to serve has changed in some fashion, I will rejoice in the Lord because why? God is working this for my good. And peace, peace with God. Friends, if that doesn't warm your heart today, you have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? It's not just that you are no longer an enemy of God, but it's now God has settled that enmity, that hatred, that godlessness that existed between you and Him. He has so quenched it that he has said, now you're my child. You're part of my household. I'm waiting to see you coming into glory where I can be that prodigal's father running out to meet you, greet you, welcome you with a kiss and say, enter into the joy of the Lord. That's the peace we have with God. And those first three reflect that. Your attitude with God. Do you love God? Are you rejoicing in God your Savior? Are you at peace with God? And does the God of peace abide in your heart? And in the second set is your attitude before others. 
Christ's likeness that comes in your relationships with your church family, with your neighbors, even with your enemies. That here the Spirit is helping you to have a better attitude to each other. So that when you get in the car and somebody cuts you off, you don't sit there shaking your fist, hammering your horn. So when your child spills the milk, you recognize it's just milk that can be cleaned up. It, it, it impacts our relationships. And for our attitude to others to be Christ-like, we need long-suffering, kindness, goodness. We need that work of the Spirit in our hearts to say, here's a time where you're going to grow in your patience with people. Isn't this wonderful? How many of you have often said, when you read James 1, 2, and 3, you say, I'm not praying for patience because that means trials are going to come. That's wrong. you're, You're looking at it backwards. What he's saying is, God is sending you these trials so that you can learn patience. You don't pray for it. God's going to send them. And while you're getting, while you're getting these trials, he's at work to teach you to suffer long. It's going to happen. You don't have to pray for it. It will happen. But you think about it again as God's attribute. What is it that it means for God to be long-suffering? It means that he is slow to anger. Aren't you glad that God's anger wasn't unleashed against you, dear Christian, but that he was slow withholding his fierce wrath so that his mercy might prevail towards you? Praise God. He doesn't punish us as we deserve. You know, that's the big thing about long-suffering. When we collide with other people, it is hard for that bitterness not to settle in where we would punish someone for years for something that they've done against us. It's easy, isn't it? Long-suffering comes to, to take that away so that mercy prevails. And kindness, replacing that bitter, spiteful, malicious, caustic spirit that we most often exercise with our tongues with a tender and kind one. Kindness. I'm always wary when somebody comes up to you, to me and says, Pastor, I, I want to share this in love. <laughs> okay, what's coming? <laughs> we don't have to say that. Kindness should very much be a part of all that we say even when you're upset, even when you're offended. And goodness, doing good to others. James 14, 17. To him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Do good. And it, and it, it comes from that long-suffering kindness. There's this willingness to do good. And again, how that reflects God. Psalm 100, when we come to worship, what is it that we're to know? We're to know that the Lord is God, and we're to know that the Lord is what? Good. God wants to see his goodness 
at work in us. And God's goodness is seen in His redeeming love toward His people. There's the pattern for our goodness, even towards sinner. Divine love at work in me. And the last three deal with the attitude you have before yourself. Who you are in your conduct when the only one who can see what you are doing besides God is you yourself. And these three come and they meet you. Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You're living out your convictions even in your private life where you have a humility and a lowliness of heart, where you are not asserting selfish ambition, but you're seeking to esteem and to regard and honor others and even their needs above yourself. That's an inward work that you must do. And self-control. And think of that one in respect of your inward fleshly appetites, pride of food and drinks, sexuality, Coveting. No, it was Paul who realized that, that God's law was a spiritual law. As much as it could help reform our lives, he realized that it was dealing with the inward man. When you get to that tenth one and says, You shall not covet. It is speaking about what is inside me and what am I doing in my heart when I see another person prospering. That self-control is the inward strength given by the Spirit where you set God's glory before your eyes. And the thing with all of that, there's the attitude before God, the attitude before others, the attitude before yourself. That this is not a take or leave it fruit of the Spirit. These are the virtues in every one of you who are in Christ These are the virtues being nurtured by the Spirit. And what Paul means when he says at the end of that, verse 23, when he says, against such there is no law. What does he mean by that? He's not saying this supersedes God's commandments or laws or other other, uh, statutes. What he's saying is, there is nothing except for you yourself. That is at work to curb, to restrain, or to otherwise deter these virtues. Because he who is at work in you is greater than he who is in the world. They're at work in you, dear Christian. And they are to be increasing in presence and liveliness within you. And the warnings that we are given are to not quench the Spirit. And he's urging you on, be kind here, be good. And you say, I'm going to resist this. <laughs> You're going to quench the Spirit. Do not grieve the Spirit when you want to strike back or when you want something very selfishly. The Spirit is saying, no, no. Think on God, love God, love your enemies with the love of God. Do this. You resist it. You're grieving the Spirit. Now, what we are called to do is to walk in the Spirit. And just as Christ has crucified the flesh with all its sinful passions, He's not left you to wander aimlessly. His Spirit is within you, and He calls you, walk in the Spirit. And as you are walking in the Spirit, that promise 
in verse 16 will be true. You shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. If you find yourself fulfilling the lusts of the flesh, and you're not focused on the Spirit, it's yourself. Walk in the Spirit. 